Thank you, Alex. Thank you for the blessing of leading us. I appreciate that so much, and good to be with you today as we get ready to read the Word and study it. You can open your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you haven't left already, once your little ones in Sunday school, they can be dismissed downstairs right now. The rest of us, God's plan for a healthy church is our study in 2 Corinthians 11, spiritual warfare. There's a uh, there's a, a great story about Booker T. Washington. It gives us a snapshot of his character. Shortly after being named the first leader of the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, he was walking in an exclusive section of town when he was stopped by a wealthy white woman. Not knowing the famous Mr. Washington by sight, she asked if he'd like to earn a few dollars by chopping wood for her. Because he had no pressing business at the moment, Professor Washington smiled, rolled up his sleeves, proceeded to do the humble chore she'd requested. When he finished, he carried the logs into the house and stacked them by the fireplace. The little girl recognized him, though, and, and later revealed his identity to the lady. The next morning, the embarrassed woman went to see Mr. Washington in his office at the Institute and apologized profusely. Perfectly all right, madam, he, required, he replied. Occasionally, I enjoy a little manual labor. Besides, it's always a delight to do something for a friend. Humility isn't easy, is it? Kind of wonder how we would have managed that situation ourselves. So we think about the Apostle Paul and we track his statements about himself in the epistle. And the later in the ministry we go, the less he evaluated himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, he said, I am the least of the apostles. A little later in his ministry in Ephesians 3.8, he said, I am the very least of all the saints. And right close to the end of his ministry, 1 Timothy 1.15, he said, I am the foremost of sinners. The older he got, the less he valued anything in his own flesh. I hope we can do the same. We're going to see in our passage today and a number of other statements that let us to peer in, that lets us peer into Paul's actions and his motives and understand a little more why the Corinthian church should have recognized his authority to lead them and his trustworthiness in relation to what he had taught them. But knowing how he really thought about himself helps us understand how hard it was for Paul to say the things he had to say to the church. In, in uh, 2 Corinthians eleven six, he said, as he agrees with his detractors, he says, but even if I'm unskilled in speech, yet I'm not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we've made this evident to you in all things. In their opinion, of course, the combination of him being, as we looked at, homely and having an unimposing personality and being unable to communicate effectively was pretty serious in their mind. So Paul says, uh, okay, I'll agree. I'm unskilled in speech, but I'm not so in knowledge. He concedes the less important area of oratorical skill. And he claims the competency for himself in the far more important area of knowledge. We just heard that when Jason read the passage in Colossians 3, right? To be renewed in knowledge in the new man. Remember that? How do you get renewed in the new man? knowledge of the Word of God. Sanctification occurs as you read the Word. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And that gives us a clue about what's important to the Apostle Paul. And by knowledge here, of course, we saw this last time, Paul means primarily insight into the mystery of the gospel, which is why he was able to discern for the church that these false teachers that come in and preached a different Jesus and a different gospel and a different spirit. And this is the danger, of course. It's always close to the church, a lack of discernment. Certainly there in the Corinthian church. 
What has always endangered the church is the junction where lack of discernment leads to gullibility. And we've looked at this before, not in these words, of course, but in the example of Eve and her deception. Uh, Christians who lack discernment, who lack knowledge of doctrine, get seduced by what appears to be a new truth. So they're not deliberately disobeying the Lord. They just don't know what the will of the Lord really is. And they think something that's come along that's new is really true. And so, however, we know that it isn't true. And we'll see that part of our passage today as it relates to false teachers and money. But as we said, it really doesn't matter what the deception is because demons don't care about what you believe as long as you don't believe the singular truth that you're supposed to believe. But when the church abandons sound doctrine, as G.K. Chesterton is noted for saying, quote, they do not believe in nothing, they just believe in everything. And, and that's just as relevant now as it was during the early church history. So Paul emphasizes what's important. He says, even if I'm unskilled in speech, yet I'm not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, We've made this evident to you in all things. And that was our mark of a faithful teacher, a faithful ministry. A faithful minister, one you can trust, is like Paul. He takes the knowledge of the Word of God and then reiterates that to the church. And then he keeps expanding that knowledge in his own right. And then that base becomes broader and the opportunity for the church is to get stronger and wiser and more spiritual and more mature and grow in spiritual depth. And so then when you're that way, you're more proficient in identifying and throwing off error. Paul doesn't want to be clever. He isn't interested in theatrics. He isn't interested in manipulating people by words or any other way. He knows what every good preacher knows, that human eloquence draws men to the preacher, not the cross. And he's very much in, in favor of faithful preaching, which should result in men and women embracing the message of the Word of God. When they walk out, they shouldn't be thinking how great the preacher is, but how great God is and the message that he has given. And then being more obedient to the Word of God, and then by that, obedience loving God in the way he's declared we can show him love, which is obeying what he says. So he wasn't interested in being clever. He certainly wasn't interested in, in uh, theatrics. He's not interested in manipulating people. And he wasn't interested in something else they accused him of either. And he wasn't in it for the money. Now look, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians eleven seven, which is where we find ourselves this morning as we work our way through this passage. Verse 7 says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Verse 9, And when I was present with you and I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. Obviously, Paul is saying these things because of the false teachers who've infiltrated the church and what they're doing. Because as always, what, what really threatens the church is what sounds Christian and what sounds biblical and what sounds spiritual. The church is able to throw off a lot of the false stuff that comes to us from the culture. But when it sounds spiritual, it sounds biblical, it sounds uh, Christian, uh, those are the things that kind of do damage to the church. People who can make it in those, and frame it up in those kinds of words can really do damage to the church. And it's very prevalent today in relation to money. And we went through... Uh, sec the section of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, we took time to point out uh, how heartbreaking it is when people are fleeced. And, and you can always tell false ministers by their motivation, which is money. Greed always drives them. And uh, false teachers are always in it for the money. They always make it seem spiritual, of course. Uh, but when the church isn't wise, they become gullible. But true teachers are not marked by greed. They're not marked by enriching themselves. And, of course, we're getting ahead of ourselves because we're going to get to those points. But I think you can see that very easily from Paul's statement about himself as he says that in chapter 11, 7 through 9. And look at verse 7, if you would, and we'll just go ahead and dig into our passage today. 
Verse 7 says, Or did I commit a sin, he says, in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? And this is uh, our 15th mark of faithful teachers. We started in chapter 10. Uh, one you can believe, and, and this is how we started our lesson this morning. He's humble. What's that mean? Humble is that uh, present active verb, tapenuo. Literally, Paul says he ranked himself lower than was appropriate. That's what it means to be humble, ranking yourself below what's appropriate. The question's a rhetorical one, obviously. Humble actions are always rewarded by the Lord. Uh, Paul is, is comparing what he did with what is apparently going on in the ministries of the false teachers. So how did he demonstrate it? Well, he, he didn't take a salary. We know that. He, no stipend, no living expenses, no emergency fund, no special offerings for his needs. He accepts that he's been doing what other speakers, including false teachers, would never do. So the question is, is he wrong? Is he such an inept order that, that for fear of being uh, unmasked, he, he, he neither asks for or expects to be paid? Is that the motivation? Is that the secret motivation for Paul? He knows he's really not that great, so he doesn't, certainly doesn't want to show up there and take, take any money. Or is there some hidden ulterior motive for Paul? I mean, that the Corinthians had been convinced that, that one of the evidences that Paul was a charlatan uh, that Paul was a fraud, that he was a fake, that, uh, was that he didn't take any money. It's just so sad. That sinful for not taking money, he must not be worthy of it. But demons, of course, through, through false teachers, twisted that so it became a reason to question Paul's integrity and his authority, which is the whole purpose of, of this statement by Paul. So he challenges the Corinthians, have I committed a sin, lowering myself to not taking uh, any money? Not at all. And there are sound reasons for that mode of behavior, and we're going to look at that in, in kind of some background in just a minute. Why did he do it? He says, so that you might be exalted. He did it to place them in a position of honor. He did it to show them how highly he thinks of them, how much he values each of them, even those who are less mature in the faith. He values them. And so they would know their value in his eyes. And that's that next mark of a faithful teacher, one you can believe. And it's kind of a by-the-way observation. It goes along with being humble. Uh, by their actions, they make sure the church knows how valuable and important it is because false teachers want to make sure you know how valuable they are. And it doesn't take long watching them to know that. It carries, I think, along the view of the church as the bride of Christ. We still see this as we looked at it just a few verses earlier, the church is the bride, and I want to present you, Paul says, as a pure bride. And this carries, I think, that same thought process along. He wants the church to know how precious she is. And of course, that's the opposite of bad husbands and false teachers who always want the attention to be on them instead of serving the bride-to-be. It brings her low by his arrogance. Paul isn't like that. And because Paul isn't like that, it proves he's the real deal. Whenever someone lowers themselves in order to raise someone else up, that's clearly not wrong. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we see the ultimate example of this, actually. Uh, you've read this before. We studied this back when we were in chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that... Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The example is that. Paul, uh, Jesus lowered himself. We know a number of passages that tell us that. And here it just says he made himself poor that we could become rich. Paul lived his life that way. Second Corinthians 6.10, remember, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. It's the consistent theme of his life exalting and making more sanctified by his sacrifice and abasement, the bride of Christ. That's a consistent theme of Paul's life. We can kind of track that all through his writings. And this is the exact same idea expressed in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. What did he do? Well, 2 Corinthians 8.9, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, that you, for 
through he, through his poverty might become rich. For sure that. So he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water and the word. You know, husbands, if you want to know how to love your wife, you want to know what to do to make her know that she's cherished, treat her like Christ treats the church. It's not hard to find an example. Just start reading through the passages of the New Testament that have to do with the church and how Christ established it and washed it and did what he did for it. And there's your examples of how you can do things for your wife. But this is the exact idea here, humbling yourself as a husband, uh, Jesus humbling himself, Paul humbling himself to serve the church. These are all very similar and use the same language. So Paul starts with this really important question. He says this, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? And, and you know, if you think about it, we don't really get to hear what the false teachers are saying. It's like just one half of a phone call. You're hearing what Paul's saying. But they work this deception. Clearly, this is spiritual warfare. Uh, perhaps they're saying, you know, can't you see, you know, Paul won't take any money because he knows he's an amateur. He doesn't, let, he doesn't measure up with us. We saw those passages earlier. He doesn't even belong with us in the same breath. He shouldn't be standing in this place and speaking to you. He's inferior. His presence is unimpressive. His speech is outright contemptible. And you should be suspicious of the credentials of that man because the very fact that he won't charge you for his preaching is that he knows he isn't worth anything. I mean, you can kind of get the idea of where they're going with the whole thing. And we can certainly understand that in today's culture where we, we measure the importance of the speaker or the importance of the information they communicate by what the speaker's fee they can command. I mean, for instance, you know, Hillary Clinton typically commands $225,000 a speech if you want to hear something that she has to say. But if you can't afford that, uh, you can always get Chelsea for $65,000 a speech. That's 10 minutes of speaking and 20 minutes of question and answer. So we, we get that. And, and or of course, you could have Mike Huckabee for 22000 or or Ben Carson for forty, and, and you can hear what they have to say. So we understand that that's kind of ranked, and when you come in to speak, you know, you can command a pretty big speaker's fee the more you're, you're, more you're considered an expert. Here's Paul, and more well-educated than any of the other apostles, certainly uh, with credentials that show him establishing churches in multiple cities. But he says, and they're giving him a hard time now. Well, obviously, you weren't worthy of pay. You're not taking it. And he'd already established that whole thing. And so we're going to go back there, and we're going to look. look turn in your copy of God's Word back to 1 Corinthians 9. Will you do that? 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? And this is the backstory, And it's an important backstory because really what it does, it, it, um, it's going to underpin everything we're going to study here when Paul talks about paying those who speak. And it's the standard by which Paul uh, makes his comments in verses 7 through 9. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 1. I'm not going to put the verses up. Uh, I just want you to read in your copy of God's Word. Look down there, and we'll come back and make some comments as we work our way through. But I want you to see this. Verse 1, it says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Verse 2. If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And of course, this is just Paul doing what he gets very tired of doing, of course, over time, defending his right to lead them. Always a delicate balance to have to discharge that right to lead when people are being critical of you. And so he has to make that balance. Verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. Verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even the rest as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, verse 6? Or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? Verse 7, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? 
Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Verse 8, am I, I'm not speaking those things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Verse 10, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope. Of sharing the crops if we sowed spiritual things in you is it too much if we reap material things from you verse 12 if others share the right over you do not we more verse 13 do you not know that those who perform the sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar verse 14 so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel verse 15 but I have used none of these things and I'm not writing these things so that I w it will be done in so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. Now, between 2 Corinthians eleven seven and the passage we just read, you may be thinking that's an awkward passage for a pastor to teach, and you would be right. Because, of course, when you read 2 Corinthians eleven seven, 7, it says, uh, Paul says, I brought the gospel to you without charge. Many uh, in churches around the country say, well, I wish our pastor would, because that in you know, that would, you know, put a lot more money back in the budget. And, uh, of course, it's an awkward thing. Those types of passages are, uh, are, are more difficult, of course. Uh, and, and, and I've told you this before, but some passages are more difficult than others. It's hard for me to teach through this passage for an atypical reason, really. Some passages are hard to teach through because they're complex. And, and the wording and ideas are hard to outline and, and compartmentalize and, and communicate in a cohesive manner. And I would say that Second Corinthians in general, 10 through 13, fall into that description. Paul is defending himself. And then he's taking on false teachers, and we don't have all that doctrine. And, and so there's a lot of stuff in there, and, and I, my desire is for, to compartmentalize that in such a way that you can come away with some knowledge that you need and think, you know, your time in the Word was, was uh, profitable. And some passages are hard to teach through because it may deal with a theme or a sin area where you don't have victory, and that can be convicting. And so that happens to me just like it happens to you. And, and sometimes a passage is difficult to teach through because it deals with how the church interacts with her pastors. And this is one of those. It deals with paying a pastor, or in, the, in this passage, the lack of pay for Paul. So this is a passage I wouldn't choose to speak on if I were a topical teacher, which is why I kid them often, because you can kind of skip around and miss all the stuff that's really, really hard and awkward and just preach the things that you really like to talk about. The problem is that the church misses all those kinds of things. And I have begun my 14th year with you, and I've only taught on the subject of money two times in that time, and, only, uh, and in that time, and only once on this particular subject, and that was back in 1 Corinthians. But as you know, I am an exegetical, expository preacher, word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and comparing Scripture with Scripture. So I have a commitment to give you, and you know this, the whole counsel of God. That's what I determined to do when I first started ministry, and to a greater or lesser extent, uh, I have done that. And, and I believe the Holy Spirit has a reason why we go through different passages at different times, and we just leave that to Him, which means that we're in chapter 11, and we just finished up chapter 10, and we're going to be in chapter 12 in a little while, so I'm going to go ahead and go through it, because if I didn't, it would be awkward for you, and you'd be thinking, why do you just skip over that? So, so I know that there's a risk when I teach this that someone who's new with us is going to think in their mind, that's just like all you preachers, that you all, all you talk about is giving money to you, just like the guys on TV. And to you, I would say, if you don't know me, ask around later, hopefully someone will confirm that's definitely not the case, all right? But I want to set the record straight and say, you know, in the context we're going to go through this morning, it doesn't apply to me, okay? Brian has taken care of us in just the most more, uh, wonderful way and most gracious way, and we're very grateful for that. So 
that's, your, that's your disclaimer at the bottom of, of, of the form. So, but you can see why these passages are tough. Now, at the beginning of the passage, look there if you would. So 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, at, at the beginning of this passage, Paul starts out with an answer to our current passage. So he says, am I not free? In other words, he's going to talk about uh, his right to either receive or not receive pay. And he has the right to choose. And that's calling back uh, a passage we're not going to study today, which is the previous uh, chapter 8, which deals with freedom in Christ. And Paul talks about freedom in Christ and, then, and the limit to that kind of freedom. And then he comes here and he starts in chapter 9, verse 1, and he says, am I not free? And the answer to that is, yes, you are. Um, am I not free to make my choice in the area of whether you're going to pay me or not? And, and I had the right to do whatever I wanted to do, and he explains why he knows this to be true in those next two verses, which says, you know, I'm an apostle, I've seen Jesus. So he has that authority, so we won't go over that. And then look at verse 3. And we can see Paul make the transition to the questions brought to him by the Corinthians. And again, it's kind of like a one-sided phone call. My defense to those who examine me, he says, is this. In other words, there have been some questions asked, and they've probably been super uncomfortable. And the question appears to have an edge to them because of the word that's used here. The word here, my defense, to those who examine me, has a judicial sense to it. Those words are used in court cases in the Greek. So people who ask the question in a critical, accusatory way, like a cross-examination. That's what's going on to Paul. So they're being unkind to him, and they're saying, hey, you know, you don't deserve to be paid. And they're, they're cross-examining Paul about this. And so he's going to answer these, and their questions or critiques or accusations concerning Paul's right to be supported by the church, because obviously there are some here who don't think he has the right. And just like back in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul corrected some misinformation about singleness and marriage, but in answering those questions, he gives us some wonderful principles to singleness and marriage and divorce and remarriage. And then in chapter 8, Paul corrected a kind of free-for-all thinking about the freedom of Christ. I can do whatever I want because I'm free. And he's like, no, there is a limit to, to all f- uh, personal freedom, and he tells what that is. And then he comes to chapter 9, and Paul is illustrating the freedom to limit your freedom, but the church receives this great benefit because we end up with principles for supporting a pastor or a missionary or a minister or answer the question, why is a minister worthy of the support of the church? And so we get that in the answer. It's just a really great thing. And maybe you thought, why do we support certain people? Why do certain people have, have salaries? Why do some not? And, and this can help clarify some of those things. And it helps to explain our current passage where Paul says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Now, look at verse 4, 1 Corinthians 9. Paul asks the question, do we not have the right to eat and drink? In other words, don't those who teach and preach the gospel, those who travel around and plant churches, have the right to daily sustenance? And what's the answer? Of course they do. Verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? In other words, don't we have the right to have a wife and bring the wife with us and have her sustained as well? Don't we have the right to be supported in this labor, in this work? And the answer to that question is in the question, isn't it? We have the right to eat. We have the right to bring a wife along, and and other apostles are doing that, so obviously that's okay. And and we have the right to stop our jobs so that we can spend all of our time ministering and be supported by that. And then he'll illustrate these important points uh, from real-life analogies, and that's where he starts in verse 7. So look there. So he says this. This this is going to underpin everything we're going to look at today. Okay, once we finish this, we can, we can look at our passage 7 through 9, and we've got the answer, okay? So look at 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? 
I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? So in other words, when we go outside the obvious examples of support in normal life, which that's what that is, I mean, if you're, it's agrarian and, or a soldiering or whatever, and you pull your living, it's obvious, okay, of normal life. Then it says the law of God also gives us some instruction in this area too. Well, when does he do that? Verse 9. For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? What's the answer? No. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope, sharing the crops. So the point is, God gave this law so that people can be sustained in the work that they do. And I think that's a pretty important point, that the work should support you. And it's also a backwards point uh, into our current administration that wants to be the only supplier of income apart from work. And that's not connected to biblical understanding of what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to gain our living. It's not from the government. So, he says this. Now, we're gonna, let's, let's skip to verse 13. We're going to come back to verse 11 in a moment and finish up. So, it's important. So, he says, the thresher should thresh in hope in sharing the crops. And, and the Lord is not speaking this just for, he's speaking this just for our sake. The law says that you shall muzzle the ox while he's threshing. So, very important. Now, now look at verse 13. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So he's giving some real-life uh, real examples. And then he skips up and he just says, listen, think about the Old Testament uh, and everything that went on there in the sacrificial system. That's a good example too. And so uh, just like in verses 8 through 10, he, he dips back in the Old Testament and shows these principles of soldiering and, and farming uh, are very long-reaching. And, and I think those examples are powerful, but he really seems to come in uh, to some really powerful punches here. This is what would happen in the old economy, in the sacrificial system. Uh, people are bringing offerings, and you can see this broken down for you in the book of Leviticus, which is where everybody gets bogged down as they're reading through the Old Testament. But if you push on through, and you begin to kind of glean out of there, you kind of see these things, and I'll just give you the highlights. Really, six different offerings the Jews would bring. And, and the first was a burnt offering. So a man comes with a burnt offering. Uh, this alone was the one that was supposed to be totally burned up. The only thing that would be left over were the entrails and the hide. And the priests were given the hide so they could be sold to provide income for them. Second offering was a sin offering. Only the fat was burned on the altar and the hide and all the meat was burned outside the camp, but a portion of it belonged to the priest for him to eat. The third offering was the guilt offering. And you see the same thing, whether it was a dove or a grain or a flower or a ram or some other animal. Part of it was sacrificed and burned and the rest was for the priests. The fourth offering was a grain offering and, and they brought flour and oil, sometimes made into a cake, along with wine. And they offered it in thankfulness. They lifted it up and, and, and thankfulness for the Lord's blessing to them. And a small token of it was burned. The rest was, went to the priest. The fifth offering was the peace offering. It was shared between the priest and the worshiper. It had a symbolic meaning. It brought to mind the peace between God and man, which was accomplished by God. So these things would come in, and this is what Paul's calling to their mind, and they would remember this, and they would understand it, because it was still going on at this time. So in every case, there was something for the priest in order that his livelihood and his support and his sustenance might come out of his service. That's what Paul's referring to. So the priest would receive the first fruits of barley or wheat or grapes or figs or, or whatever. Some of the first fruit of everybody's crop had to go to the priesthood to support them uh, in the Old Testament. They received one-tenth of the Levitical tithe. Uh, they received one-fiftieth of any crop. Uh, same with those who were baking anything. And, and so God set up a tenth, just a part of what the Jews were required to give. There were other tenths that went to other things. But this went to this particularly in support 
at the temple. So Paul's just drawing their minds back away from the new covenant to the old economy and just reminding them that the Lord has set up the support of the priest to come right out of that ministry. And then he connects it to today. Look at verse 14. This is very important. He says this, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So here we go. So this is not a human reason. He's just pulled out, you know, how work goes, how soldiering goes. He, he put, went back and said, listen, and God gave a law that said don't muzzle the ox, but that wasn't for an ox. It was for the people with the gain and living from what they do. And then he moved on and said, listen, in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system, there was tents and tithes given to and supported the priest. But here, there's not a human reason here. What is it? This has been reiterated by the Lord himself to Paul. And, and this is probably a direct statement from Paul uh, to Paul from the Lord. It's a very compelling example, very clear, very straightforward. And then verse 11, now go back. Okay, so the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now, so he's given all the reasons. And then he says in verse 11, he starts saying, okay, now because you know this is how it's supposed to be, and of course there's many in the church resisting paying Paul, verse 11 he says this, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? That's the question. And what's the answer? Well, if you consider the human analogies in God's law, no, it's not too much to ask. It's precisely what's supposed to happen. And that's pretty normal. That's the normal way of life. And now we get to the crux of the background for the criticism Paul's taking in our current passage. It is normal and fine and natural for Paul to receive a living from ministering to the church in Corinth. It wouldn't have been a sin to receive it. But he didn't. And here's our explanation. And that's not a sin either. Look at verse 12. If others share the right over you, in other words, if you've paid other preachers and other teachers, wouldn't you pay us? Because he says this, do not we more? If others share the right over you, do not we more? And in other words, Paul did the hard work and the investment and, and endured long with the church, and he bore it and stuck it out. And what's the answer? Of course, uh, of course, Paul had the right. And by Paul's reasoning, they had the obligation to what? To take care of Paul. That would have been very appropriate, even more appropriate in light of the investment Paul made in this church in Corinth. Now look at the last part of verse 12. Nevertheless, he says, and here's where we begin to underpin exactly our passages this morning. Nevertheless, we did not use this right. So what are they saying? You refused to be paid and that was a sin because you weren't even worthy to be paid and you don't come because you're just, uh, you're inferior, right? Paul says, listen, we didn't use this right. I was able to say no to it. I had the right to say no. They had an obligation to provide it, not just from human analogy, but from the law of God, a direct quote from the Lord for the New Testament church and for the example in, in the sacrificial system. So there was a lot of, of uh, weight behind paying. And Paul said, we didn't use the right. And then he says this, but we, and here's how Paul exalts the church. This is very cool. So this comes back to our passage. I lowered myself to exalt you. But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. In other words, and here's how Paul exalted the Corinthian church, we suffer whatever we need to suffer and will not take any money from you. Because Paul knew there's a faction in the church in this chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians that would balk at having to support Paul as he did his ministry. And Paul was a strong believer because strong believers are able to get above their rights, see? 
you may believe you're able to do some certain thing as a believer, but if it's causing someone else to stumble, as a strong believer, you'll give your right up. And so he gave up his right, and he waived his right to support. And he says, we endure all things so that we will cause, mark it, no hindrance. Literally, we'll endure, or we'll bear in silence, bear without complaint, we'll endure whatever is deprived. And, of course, he'd already mentioned some of the things that were deprived. In other words, food and sustenance, and he had to work to make sure he had something to eat. And he couldn't bring along a wife and all those kinds of things. He already told some of the things he had been deprived. And, and it's, it's the present active indicative. So he is continually enduring throughout his current ministry with them the absence of things that he has a right to and that he no doubt needs. That's the word. Okay? And that word hindrance is a Greek noun, engopen. It's, it's a wartime word. It has to do with breaking up a road or, or a path to impede an enemy pursuit or an attack. We see it, you know, we see it in most wars, but certainly in World War II where um, many of the bridges were knocked out so uh, armies couldn't pass over, equipment couldn't pass over, military uh, things, machinery and whatever couldn't, supplies. So breaking up the road, blocking the road, collapsing roads, those kinds of things would make it difficult for someone to follow. And so Paul uses it here, and I think it's very interesting. Um, I'm not going to do anything to chop up the highway or tear down the bridge by which, here it is, the gospel is advancing to you. So he knew inside the church there were some who were opposing him being paid, and he realized that if he went ahead and used the right, which he obviously had, it would inhibit them. So he was willing to give up his right. I'm not going to do anything that's going to keep the gospel from advancing, and that's how he exalted the church. I don't want to do anything to make it difficult for you to accept the gospel that I'm here to teach. It was the number one thing for Paul. He wanted to, to pass that knowledge of the gospel on to them, to see them redeemed, and he wasn't going to do something that would cause them to have some kind of block. Even though I have, your right, uh, have the right to your support, I don't want you to think that I'm in this for the money, so I'm going to set that right aside. And he was willing to endure anything rather than give those who opposed him and questioned him a reason to not be redeemed. So that's the reason why Paul didn't take a salary. But you see how it's being all twisted and messed up in the church right now for Paul. And that's a sad place for the Corinthian church to be, isn't it? that Paul doesn't take any support because it would have caused too much of a uh, stumbling block, even though it was the right thing to do and the Lord would be pleased. So they're in a very sad place, a very immature place. It's a difficult place for every minister, too. And this hasn't changed. The question is, is there something I have or right I'm exercising that's a roadblock for the message of the gospel or for the ministry? Every minister, every minister has to ask that question. You know, do I buy this car? Can I buy this house? You know, if I live here, is that going to be a block for the gospel? Will people have a hard time with it? See, because ministers and their families live in a fishbowl. And everything they do, and everyone who ministers lives in a fishbowl. And everything they do, everybody watches. And does it cause and inhibit the gospel? That's the big question. Always. And so, Paul has this same question he has to answer. Now look at verse 15, because it carries the same emphasis. Paul's freedom to limit his freedom. Verse 15 but I've used none of these things. What's these things? Well, everything that I, everything I told you would support being paid. I've used none of them. And he says, here's an example of somebody who has the right and sets it aside. You know, he says, now watch. And Paul, what's the later rest any accusation of some kind of ploy? Okay. This is, this, is how, this is how devious Satan is and this is how devious people who want to criticize are. So he says, but I've used none of these things. And I'm not writing these things to, so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. So Paul wants to put to rest any other accusation 
okay, of saying one thing and meaning another. Because he's, he already has people who are examining him and, and from whom he knows he has to make a defense in verse 3. He knows that somebody's going to say, I know why you're writing this, Paul. You're saying, I don't want any money. I wouldn't take any money. I have the right to money, of course, and I'll give you lots of examples why I deserve it, but I'm not going to take it. And then you're expecting me to say, um, oh, come on, Paul, please take it. And, and then you'll say, okay, okay, if you insist, I'll take it. I don't want to make you feel bad. That's precisely what the verse, <laughs> I'm not writing these. It's amazing what he has to go through. It hasn't changed at all in modern church times. I'm not writing these things so that it'll be done so in my case, for it'd be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. In other words, for me to just go backwards on what I said I was going to do and then be double-minded. I'm not going to do that. So undoubtedly, Paul knows he's going to have people accusing him of this. He knows how low they're going to stoop. And, and again, they're just gullible, aren't they? They don't have knowledge. They don't understand the doctrine that goes along with it, and so they just believe whatever somebody's telling them, and they think that's the right way, and it's a high tower. So Paul knows they're going to be accusing him of this, saying things like, you know, why have you done it, Paul? Why you, you know, why'd you write this? Paul, Paul just says, well, I'm not seeking support. I haven't changed my approach one bit. You know, I have freedom to limit my freedom. I've done so to my own detriment. I cho- I've chosen not to require support from you in the past. And that's the way I'm going to keep it for the future. See? So go back to 2 Corinthians 11.7, and now we have the exact explanation of the passage. Paul asked the question, and you can hear the answer now. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? What's the answer? No. And he made it very clear to them back in 1 Corinthians 9, precisely what was required from the church and why he wasn't going to take it. Because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. And did he take anything? He did not take anything. He worked hard with his own hands. He worked with another couple and provided the needs. And scripture indicates that he worked hard enough. He provided for other people's needs too. Who were ministering along with him. Verse 8. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. So he just makes it really plain. So Paul didn't have the same policy with the other churches who he had planted. He didn't say to them, I won't take support from you. He was only doing it to the Corinthians because of the problem that they had inside the church. And it would be a a hindrance to the gospel. So what happens? Other churches stepped in and they met the need that the Corinthian church should have met. So he says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And, And when I was present with you and was in need... I was not a burden to anyone. In other words, he didn't say, let's take up a special offering because I have to have this thing covered. He didn't say anything to anyone. What happened, though? For the brethren came from Macedonia. Isn't that great? Those are our favorite people. We just studied them in chapter 8 and 9 of Second Corinthians. The poster church for what free will New Testament giving looks like. The type of attitude it takes and how it's supposed to be done. And so they stepped in. And they supplied, it says, fully my need. Now, this is the church... They didn't have much to begin with, but yet stepped in and helped Paul. And this is news to us. We didn't know this had occurred while he was actually at Corinth. So this is pretty cool, which is not surprising then when he shows up there and he wants to just capture the grace that's been going on in Macedonia. And that's how he starts that whole passage, isn't it? I want to make known to you the grace of God given to the churches in Macedonia. There's something going on here because free will giving that's that generous when you don't have much is obviously the Holy Spirit prompting people to do it. And they have a full understanding that God resupplies what you give. And, and we won't go through all of that again, but here we are, and, and the Macedonian church steps in. It's very cool. And, of course, that coupled with the hard work of Paul in tent making, 
supplied all the needs that he had. And so he says this, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and I will continue to do so. And this, beloved, and we, we said this at the beginning because it was just so obvious, but this is the, the next mark of a faithful teacher, somebody you can believe, and just obviously redundant, even though what Paul chose in the Corinthian church is not the standard. Those who are faithful, those who are trustworthy, they aren't in it for the money. And, I th- and we read through First Timothy chapter 3 just uh, peripherally, but you understand part, part of the requirements for those who want to serve as elder is they're not in love with that. So you disqualify yourself that way, but just obviously from Paul's approach to the church, his gentleness and his kindness and his, the way he exalted the church by humbling himself, we realize that, okay? And so Paul again just says, you know, I haven't changed my approach. You, of course, may have been fooled uh, in thinking the only reason I haven't asked for support was because I know that wh- I, what I have to offer isn't worth any support. But the real reason is, that's one you've known all along, I humbled myself. I don't want you to stumble over this issue. So I chose not to take it. I was provided what I needed. I haven't created an obstacle for the gospel. But you know what? Demons are sly and people will believe things if they don't have knowledge. And even in Paul's sacrifice, they twisted this around somehow to make it look like Paul was just a fake and the church bought it. That's what we are. And so you can see how difficult it is to present all of this, but you can see how easy it is for the church to be fooled in a bunch of different areas. And so you've got to be wise. So my encouragement to you, of course, is always to be in the Word each day yourself, reading through it in a year cover to cover. You'll begin to understand the will of the Lord, understand what He wants for you, understand how He works in the church, how He's worked in the past. And you'll hold the Holy Standard up before your life. You'll have that doctrine, that knowledge that you need. And you'll understand then when falsehood comes, you'll be able to identify it because it will resonate and you'll say, no, that's not exactly what the Word of God says. It says this. And that's not a bad thing. And so that's where we begin today. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be here together. It's such a joy to do the things that we do just very simply. Grateful for all who have come, even guests who are here. Lord, we're so grateful for them, and they're just jumping right in with the, in the Word with us. And I know that you just work through your Word. Anytime it's opened up and explained, you do your work, and, and you do your work in areas of, of lives that we don't know anything about, just like the work in my life and no one knows about it. And we're just grateful for the power of your Word, which is uh, a sharp sword and pierces and divides and separates and reveals the true intents of the heart. Father, as we come out of you know, difficult passages, we just pray that uh, you gave it to us so that we would teach it. You gave it to us so we would know it. And so then help us come away with the things that are important for us to know. Uh, to be a wise church, a knowledgeable church, one that's not thrown about by every wind of doctrine and wave that comes along. An ability to rein our lives in and see the things that would cause others to stumble and exclude them from us kinds of things are important, part of basic Christianity, and these are things you expect, of course, from those who call on your name. And so, Father, I pray we'll be that kind of church, faithful in this way, that you might allow us to grow deep in our understanding with you, of you and your word, and that you might use us in a powerful way to go out into our communities and to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is revealed by our obedience to you, and then our neighbors as ourselves, so we can bridge the gap of a contentious culture and society. Uh, bound and determined to rip itself apart. And then, Lord, as we have that testimony of our obedience, then the Great Commission becomes our opportunity to give out the gospel to every creature and baptize them and teach them to observe everything that you have commanded us. And you promise to be with us all through that effort. We wait for your son's return, and we'll be glad when he does. But, Lord, in that meantime, 
Help us to work in the spheres you've given us with the people you've put in our life to do the things we know you've asked us to do. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.